Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. Super stoked to be here today with Bryce Matheson. He is a serial entrepreneur, um, heavily built in the real estate investing industry. So Bryce, thank you so much for being here. We'd love to kick it off with a story, man. So could you tell us one of the craziest real estate transactions or experiences that you've had? You bet. Um, so I think probably the first thing that comes to mind uh, is when we we purchased a property from a prison inmate, um, <laughs> which is, is pretty, pretty unique. Um, so a couple years back, I think it was back in 2020. Um, I, I mean, I was, I wouldn't say I was brand new, but I, I was still newer in the game. And I remember I was, I was, I was driving for dollars. So I was kind of weaving in, you know, up and down different streets. Um, my, my wife and I actually on Sunday, you know, Sunday afternoons, we would just hop in the car and, and we would just zigzag, you know, down neighborhoods. But we were, I remember passing this house and, if you can even call it a house, it was, you can't even call it a shack really. I mean, it was, mm -hmm. it was three sides, like three stud walls and the, the roof and all the trusses had caved in. And so I was thinking, my goodness, this, I mean, this, this has some value. So, and then in addition to the, the house shack, whatever you call it in the back, in the back corner of the property was a, uh, um, uh, a shop and the shop was actually really nice. It looked like it had been built in the last 10 years or so. So just a shop and then this really, really dilapidated house. And so I thought to myself, I've, I've got to figure out who owns this. So I did all the, you know, the traditional routes, you know, you go to the, uh, the County courthouse, you see who owns it. You look at the tax records. I could figure out the name of who owned the person, but I couldn't actually get a hold of them. I tried every phone number I could think of, um, I tried writing letters, you, you, you know, just all the, all the standard routes. And, uh, I just, you know, weeks went by and I couldn't get a hold of the owner. And I just kept driving past this house and I'm like, how can I, how can I get a hold of the owner? Anyway, um, finally I just, it just on a hunch, I typed the, uh, the owner's name into Google, um, and, uh, a local news outlet, uh, article popped up with the person's name and it said, um, you know, so-and-so, uh, uh, court hearing. And so I remember clicking on that and it turns out that the owner of the property was in prison for grand theft. And so I, I guess, uh, he had owned a construction company or was starting a construction company and he went and, and stole, uh, um, some heavy machinery and, you know, one thing led to another, he got, he got thrown in prison. So, um, I, I called the prison, I got his mailing address, um, and I wrote him a letter, just snail mail and said, Hey, uh, are you the same, um, you know, John Smith that owns this house? And after a couple of weeks, I got a letter back that said, Hey, yeah, I am the same John Smith that, um, you know, I'll, I'll protect his name just to be nice. But, totally. um, yeah. And so he, uh, we, we just started writing letters back and forth and I said, Hey, would you be interested in selling? And he said, well, I, you know, I had, had intentions on, on fixing the house up when I, when I got out of here and, you know, all these different things. But, um, one thing after another, we finally, uh, he came to terms and he said, you know what, I, I guess I will, I will sell the house. So I made the first offer. I said, I will buy, um, I'll, I'll offer $17,000. And he came back as like, nah, I was kind of hoping for a little bit more than that. Um, 
so I wrote another letter and, and mind you, there's like a couple weeks in, you know, in between. Sure. So it's, it's, it's painfully slow as you're, you're trying to negotiate a, a deal just over, <laughs> over mail. Um, so I made another offer and said, okay, I'll, I'll give you $25,000. And he came back and said, no. And, and so finally, after three or four different letters, we finally agreed on $40,000 and that $40,000 included the land. It included the shop and then it included the dilapidated house. Now you would think that that would be the end of the story, but it, it gets better. So, mm-hmm. um, I, uh, I wrote him a letter and I said, okay, perfect. Like let's, let's do it. That letter bounced back and, and they came back and said, you know, no longer at this, at this like recipient, no longer at this address. And so I was just like, what, what's going on? So I called the prison and it turns out that he had been released or at least that's what their, their records show. So I was kicking myself because I was thinking, man, this has taken nine months worth of work to finally lock down this deal. And then the guy gets out of prison and I'm not going to be able to, you know, buy the property at the end of it all. Anyway, I threw a little bit more digging. It turns out that he had just been released from that specific prison and was transferred to another prison in Boise, about four hours away from me. And, uh, anyway, so finally the nice thing about, uh, the Boise prison was, uh, I, I guess with the original prison he was at, we couldn't do phone calls, but now with the prison in Boise, they had phone calls and we actually did FaceTime. And so, uh, you know, we could, we could talk face to face. We finally got a, got to meet, you know, person to person best you can. And, uh, and it, you know, it finally went through, but then there were still some additional complications, uh, where he was in prison. And so he, he couldn't physically sign the docs. And so we had to go with like, go through a power of attorney to get his dad to be able to sign. And then his dad had to go and pull some things out of the shop. And it was, man, it was, it was quite the process, but we finally got it locked down but it still doesn't quite end there. So when we finally purchased the property, um, when it was officially in our name, um, I went one day to, uh, change the locks on the shop. And, uh, I noticed that when I walked past the shop, the, there were some curtains up in the window and the curtain had moved. So it turns out there was somebody actually living in the shop. So we had to get the the police involved. Um, we had to, you know, a, you know, it, there's no water. There's, I mean, it's just a, it's just a shop, but there were still squatters living in the shop. Um, anyway, so long, long story long, we finally got the squatters out. Um, I had a demo crew come in, we bulldozed the house and we got such a good deal on that property because of the land and the shop that we built a, um, a new home in place of the old one. And the numbers on this just worked out to be amazing. So we bought, imagine. um, uh, it was it was incredible. So because we paid forty thousand dollars for the land and the shop in the back corner, we spent about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars building the house. And it was I mean it's it's a little house. It's uh, two bed, one bath, like nine hundred square feet or so. But it's got a pretty cool design. Um, anyway, so we spent one hundred fifty thousand building for the, the construction. We were all in for one hundred ninety thousand. Um, we just cash flowed the whole thing. And then we did a, a cash out refi at the end. The bank came back and appraised it at 285,000. And so all said and done, when we did our cash out refi, uh, I think they gave us a check for 197,000 and it cost us 190. So it, that was probably our craziest real estate story so far. Just the whole process of 
dealing with the, you know, the prison system. And then on top of that, we got a check for $7,000 to build a, a brand new house. And now it's on Airbnb and, and it cash flows probably close to 2000, 2,500 a month. So Paid seven grand to make 2000 a month for the rest of your life. Right. Not bad, huh? Not bad. <laughs> this really opens up like a whole thing. Like, I mean, you could make that a lead generation strategy. Like, I, I mean, I'm assuming anybody going to jail is in public records. And yeah, for, it is. Mm-hmm. So it's like you could just start reverse looking up, do they own property and reach out? I'm sure a lot of them need to sell. Like, obviously, that's not the way you I mean, did I, it, but yeah. <laughs> that's a genius idea. I'd never even <laughs> thought of that. That's crazy. I mean, maybe it's not worth it, right? Yeah. I mean, you had nine months of writing letters back and forth, but my goodness, like, the deal was amazing. Um, yeah. And it was, it was definitely very rewarding at the end, you know, all said and done. So. Wow. Crazy. So to take us through a little bit of your journey, it, it, what got you into real estate? What were you doing before and, and what brings you to today? Yeah, you bet. So I, uh, I didn't really start until, um, well, 20, I guess 2016 was when I bought my first house. Um, so I was, uh, I had just graduated from college. I was, uh, I went to school for, for it and, and that was kind of my first, my first love and my first passion was it. So I went to school for it. I had just gotten out of, um, out of college. Um, I was living with a couple, couple buddies of mine. Um, and then kind of just randomly out of the blue, like I decided, you know, I'm going to buy a house and it wasn't like, like I'm going to, I'm going to house hack and I'm going to rent out the room. Like I didn't even know that was a thing at the time. So I just, I just like, you know, I'm, I'm going to buy a house. And so luckily I already had, you know, roommates baked in that I was living with. And so when I ended up buying a, it was a four bed, two bath house. I think it paid $147,000 or something like that back in, uh, back in 2016. But anyway, so for two years, um, I just lived with these roommates. And, and like I said, I didn't, I wasn't really in real estate at that point. Like I owned real estate, but I wasn't actively doing anything in it. Um, I didn't know that house hacking was a thing, but I was, you know, doing it. My roommates were, were paying my mortgage and then some. Um, so fast forward about two years later to 2018, um, I was getting married and my, my wife or future wife at the time, she was actually doing the same thing. She was a, she was a nurse. Um, she had purchased a house. She was re- just renting out the room. So we kind of, we kind of joke and say that we fell in love at, at first, you know, interest rate mm-hmm. nice as hers. And so we decided to sell, uh, sell my house. Like I didn't even think about renting it at the time. We're just like, well, you know, like we're getting married. We don't need two houses. So we'll just sell one. Um, at the time in my job, I was making $40,000 a year. And when we sold my house in 2018, I walked away with a check for $40,000, which was exactly what I was making, you know, at my, my day job. So over the course of two years, I had lived completely for free. I'd never made a mortgage payment. My roommates made it for me. And when it was all said and done, I walked away with a check for $40,000, and so seeing that, that kind of stark contrast, I was like, if I, I mean, if I made $40,000 with one house, I, I gotta, I gotta figure out how to do this again. And so that's, that's kind of where, you know, like I tasted the blood in the water and, uh, and that's kind of just where it started. So we took, we took the the money, we paid off my student mm-hmm. loans, paid off credit cards, paid off my car. Mm-hmm. And then, um, everything that was left over, we, uh, we used it to buy our, our first rental and then things just kind of started rolling from there. That's so cool. So then the $40,000 profit launched you there. 
And then at that point, did you immediately just quit, go full time? What was the transition like? Yeah, not not quite. Um, and uh, it, it's kind of funny because even even to this day, I've 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 still got a W two job, even though I could on it. I mean, honestly, truly, I could probably retire and and never work another day in my life. But I just I, I don't know. I, I guess I can't can't sit still. But no, it was it was definitely not like full time into real estate. It was very much uh, a, a side hustle. Uh, you know, we bought we bought. Um, our very first, our very first like true rental that we weren't living in was, um, uh, it was a single family home and it had a trailer in the backyard. And so it was, it was kind of a non-traditional duplex. Um, but that thing look, you know, looking back that, that may still be one of the best deals that we ever purchased. Cause we, we kind of got the, the trailer as a freebie. And so it was, we're paying the mortgage on the house, but the, you know, the trailer was just free and clear. And so combining the rents with those, it, it cash flowed like crazy. I think, I think one day I did the the math and like the cash on cash return was 132% or something like it was just something ridiculous, you know? And like looking back, you, you didn't even know how, how good you had it. But anyway, back, back to your initial, initial point, like, no, it was very much a side hustle started with, uh, started with, you know, those two doors and then bought another duplex, bought another fourplex, um, bought a couple single family homes and just, you know, slowly started to scale up from there. Oh, that's absolutely tremendous. So, so what's the next step from that point? You slowly start scaling up. I know you're doing a lot of fix and flips now. So how did that journey look like? When, when did you switch models? Yeah, so it was, it was a good question. Um, we, we just kind of came across a, a good deal. Um, and we luckily we had a good buddy of ours who was kind of in into real estate already. And he was quote, you know, quote unquote, our mentor. And he, he was like, you know, this, this would be a good, good flip. And it was very much a, um, cosmetic flip, you know, paint and, and carpet and flooring. Um, and surprisingly that flip actually went really poorly. Um, we, <laughs> um, I remember we, we stayed up, you know, I'd, I'd go to work from nine until five and then for probably until about six o'clock until two in the morning, I was working on that flip just because, you know, we, we didn't have systems in place. We didn't have contractors. Like we were doing all the labor and, and I think that's a, you know, a very common, common story. Um, but we, uh, yeah, we just did all the rehab ourselves. And when it was all said and done, we threw it on the market and this was back in 2019, you know, so this wasn't, wasn't during the the craze of, of the market that we've had over the last couple of years. Um, uh, but it, it sat on the market for five months and it just sat and sat and sat and we we're like, what, what are we doing wrong? You know, uh, we had a pretty good spread on it. Like we bought it for 120,000. We, I think all, all said and done, we had about 18,000 into it. Um, we listed it for 185 and it just, it just sat, you know, nobody wanted it. So after five months, we pulled it off the market and turned it into another rental and, um, it, it did okay. But honestly, I was thinking, you know what, this might be it for flipping. I don't, I don't know if we're going to keep doing this, but, um, a second deal came up and the numbers were a little bit better and, and we learned, you know, the, these are the things you rehab. These are the things you don't spend money on. These are the things you don't do. And just luckily the second one kind of, it, we did well enough on the second one that it was like, okay, you know what? I think I kind of catch the vision. Um, and then we did a third one and we made a good amount of money on that one. And that's when we were really like, okay, this is, this is pretty great. But then on top of all that, we started to see like, Hey, I, I just made $20,000 on a flip. And I started to ask myself, we've got all these rentals, but 
it's going to take me seven years to make $20,000 in, you know, net profit from, from a rental property. And so that's when we kind of transitioned or pivoted more towards the flipping. Not that we're against rentals per se, but I think, I think we enjoy the the flipping side a bit more. Tell me a little bit more about that. That's uh, there's a lot of people that tend to like more of the holds. Is it just like the physical work or what's, what's drawing you to the flipping? Um, honestly, it's, it's the quick money. Um, and then it's also, um, not having to deal with tenants. And I know a lot of people are probably like, well, you know, you don't have to deal with tenants, but you have to deal with cracked foundations and, and leaky water lines and, you know, all that. But I think the thing is I can, I can deal with the cracked foundations and, and the broken water lines on my own time and not, not on somebody else's schedule. And two, like, it's just kind of a different beast to me and, and the beast seems more more manageable. I, I don't know. And then on top of it all, it's it's really the the quick profits. I, I kept, like I said before, I kept kind of stepping back and thinking to myself, why why am I working so hard for, you know, two hundred dollars per door or or even on a good rental, you know, three or four hundred dollars on on twenty thousand dollars of profit? Uh I you know, that would take me what fifty 50 months of, of rental income or, you know, whatever the numbers come out to, but typically, you know, typically speaking, it's five to six years from a single rental property to make the same amount of money as you would on a flip. And then, you know, other people will say, well, there's, you know, you've got depreciation and, and you've got other people paying down your mortgage and things like that. And, and absolutely, those are all, all true, but I, I, I like the, I like the challenge of getting in there, getting dirty, getting it cleaned up and mm -hmm. then moving on to the next one. So I got a really specific question for you. You mentioned on the first one, it sure. didn't go super well. So I could tell you, like, I've lost money on flips twice. Um, once I lost $15,000. That was not fun. And the other time I only lost like three. But I could tell you every single thing that I did wrong on each of those properties because I remember those far more than the ones that I've won on. So what do you think you got wrong on the first one? The first one, the biggest thing is that we skimped on... So after hindsight's 2020, right? So I now know that when, when a prospective buyer is walking through your, your finished flip, they're making mental notes and they might even just be doing it, you know, subconsciously. They probably don't even know that they're doing it, but when they walk into the room, they make all these notes. Like, I don't like, I don't like how it smells. Um, mm -hmm. there's a little piece of trim that's not caulked. There's a little piece of paint that's flaking. There's this, there's this, there's this. And, and again, it's all subconscious. They may not actively know that they're making that list, but so many of those checklist items add up. And then they finally just decide this isn't the house for me. And so I think there were too many of those little things that added up. We just, we were, we were worried about the money, the, the time we were just anxious to get it up on the market. Um, there were a couple like old, um, you know, the old aluminum style single pane windows that we should have replaced, but it was just too expensive. So we didn't, you know, we didn't do it, but all those little things added up. And, and ultimately that's, I think that was the problem and it, it came back to bite us. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Just to, as a buyer's agent that has flipped houses before, guess what I'm pointing out? I'm pointing out all the little things the flipper missed. Um, it's like, oh, look, exactly. This guy did not take the time to change out all the outlets. That tells me that they did not care about the job. Um, so that's just a you comment. Got yep. Um, Matt, go ahead and take over here. I just thought that was totally. I want to have a little banter here uh, and maybe ask a question. So essentially, you're loving the flip. 
because you're not dealing with the tenants, you're not dealing with the headaches, you're making the quick cash. So let's kind of do some maybe devil's advocate role play, what you might have it with. Like, so what do you do with your cash? You know, and are you investing that cash later into rentals or how are you building your wealth? And uh, I'd love for you to kind of give me the, the whys behind your position. You bet. Yeah. So originally the flip was how we kept going because we would, we would take any of the excess cash that we had, it would be used for a down payment on a rental and then you're done, right? Like you find another rental and you don't have any cash. You can't, you can't keep buying it. So we would, we would do the flips to, to build the down payments uh, for the rentals. But pretty soon um, we, we started to realize, well, actually let me back up. I, I, I feel like in real estate, there's kind of this natural progression. Like when, when you very, very first get started in real estate, all you're looking at is rental properties because it's the lowest barrier to entry. Everybody starts with rentals. I mean, it, you, you occasionally have these one-off people who start with a flip or, you know, maybe they inherit a property, but typically speaking, like it's the lowest barrier to, to barrier to entry. And so you, you start with a flip and then once you, or excuse me, start with the rentals. And then as soon as you kind of get a hand on, on the rentals, you start to move into flipping. And then after that, you're like, well, maybe I should try my hand at like new construction or development. And then after that, you kind of get into like lending because then you don't have to deal with all the hassle and the headache of all the other things, dealing with tenants and contractors and things like that. And so slowly over time, I think we just followed that very common uh, uh, pathway is that, you know, we started to get out of rentals, move into flips. And then eventually we had so much capital that it's like, you know, why am I doing the flips when I can just lend the money to somebody else? And sometimes I can even make more money lending the money than I can doing the full flip myself and dealing with all the contractors and dealing with all the headaches and the broken water lines and, and all that. So uh, it's not, by no means is it, a, is it a bad path, but I just, I see that natural progression over and over. We followed that. And that's kind of why we are now starting to pivot more towards the hard money, just because it's so much more passive. I love the hard money aspect. Like there's so many people that have pointed out from an illustration standpoint that I did, I didn't think about this, but they're, you know, basically the banks have the biggest buildings for a reason. And I've heard that over and over over the last few years, mm -hmm. as I've gotten more into investing and they, it's the most relaxed thing, as long as you're lending it to the right people that are able to, to finish the project. So you like was wholesaling kind of a thing that was talked about in your guys' circles. Like, did you guys try wholesaling or wholetailing or was it just like, were the options that were in front of you basically just buying and holding or flipping? Yeah, it's, uh, I, I, yes, all, you know, all the above. I think, um, often, oftentimes people look at, and, and, you know, this is my own personal philosophy, but a lot of people look at, um, they look at all the options and, um, they say, which, which one can I make the most money with? Like if, if say you've got a deal and you can, you can rent it, you can wholesale it, or you can flip it. Um, say you flip it and you can make $60,000 or you can wholesale it and make $40,000 all day long, all day long. I will wholesale that property and make less money than going through the full process of, of flip. I would rather take $40,000 guaranteed than $60,000 potentially maybe six months from now in the future. So I, I think too many people like are, are, are kind of stuck in their, their way. And like, this is what we do, but 
all of these different methods are tools in your tool belt that you can use to make money. Maybe a property doesn't make a good flip, but it's a great rental and, you know, and vice versa. I think too many people are just, this is what I do. And this is what I always do. And they're too afraid yeah, to branch I out. love that answer. And that's the way that I know Tim and I talk about it a lot too. And Tim, feel free to chime in if you see it differently, but it's just like, the property itself, the margins, the workload, everything kind of dictates to you what the best strategy is. More than I would say mm -hmm. we come to the property with a preset strategy. Exactly. How do you typically analyze your deals? Like what's your process? Um, I mean, give give me a situ you know, a, a situation as far as like a uh a rental or a flip or just like any random or let's property phrase the question period. this way since you are pro more flipper than holder, what would it take for you to hold a property instead of flip it? Mm, good question. Um, I, it would have to be like above average returns. Like it would, I would have to be able to get a steal of a deal. I would have to make at least $500 net per month per door. And my cash on cash would have to be pretty, pretty crazy. Like, 40% or higher. And, and mostly just because it's, it's kind of like the, the headache tax, like for, mm -hmm. for those kind of numbers, like, okay, yeah, I'll keep that. But if it's just going to be a standard rental, like, yeah, I don't, I don't really want it. I'm, I'm tired of dealing with tenants and things like that. So it would, it would have to be like a pretty, pretty exceptional, um, you know, deal for me to keep it as a rental. Right. That makes sense. I mean, that kind of answers my question. I was going to ask, why didn't you try the Burr strategy? But I mean, it looks like you're, you're looking for certain cash on cash returns that you're probably not going to get there. Matt, it looks like I cut you off, so I'm going to bring you back <laughs> right on. In. So, because it's interesting that the story that started out was something that you burned. So $2,000 a month of cash flow obviously works within that paradigm. I'd like to, to transition into the lending side. So let's, we talked about the positives, obviously. A lot of times you sit back, do nothing. But talk to us about like, what are the headaches of being a lender? And like, is it the continual having to search for people to get the money or, or is it having to be on top of people? Yeah. So the great thing is that I really don't feel like there are too many headaches. So the, and that's really why we're transitioning to is because I haven't found very many downsides. Um, you know, we, because we are so well connected in, in, in our, you know what, like we're probably 80,000 people. Um, so it's not like a big metro area by any means. Like it's, it's pretty, you know, pretty small geographically. I'm familiar with all the flippers. I'm familiar with all like the hard money lenders in the area. I, I know which flippers have a good reputation and who doesn't. I, I've walked through other rehabs and seen, I don't, this isn't quality work. This isn't somebody that I would work with. So be, because of all that information, like it's really nice because I get to pick and choose who we lend to. I, I know who I absolutely will not lend to and the people that I'll lend to all day. You can see the people who have done 30 flips or the people who have done three, you know? And so you, just because of that, you get to choose the the quality of the the borrower that you lend to. And other than that, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty simple aside from, you know, a couple papers that you fill out and send to the title company and, and they do the rest. So with the hard money lending, is that something you do locally or are you doing that on a national scale? Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely local for now. I mean, I'd, I'd love to have, you know, institutional money where we could, we could do nationally, but no, it's, it's all just local right now. So pretty much all the profits that we make from our flips just goes back into a hard money fund. And then we either we'll use that ourselves again, if we find another flip, or if we're in the process of, of searching for more deals, 
you know, we'll, we'll lend it out momentarily until we find the next one. We've, we've got pretty good deal flow at this point. Like, you know, we've, we've got good connections with wholesalers and things like that. So we've, our, our deal flow is pretty, pretty steady. Um, but we've, we've got enough money that we can lend and do flips, you know, on the side, but, I don't know that I'd ever turn down a flip if the spread is good enough. I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, just say no to, to free money, but, um, for the most part, yeah, I think that's really where we're transitioning is, is into that hard money position. So I want to praise you because on this show, we really focus on freedom and purpose. And so it's super cool to see you not focus just on the dollar, but to actually focus on more of your quality of life. And so just wanted to, you know, praise you on that. And then as far as like, yeah, I appreciate that question goes. One thing that seems um, interesting to me is the strategies that you've gone into seem to be the strategies that could levy fairly heavy taxes on you. Like flipping is a heavy taxable thing. And so is collecting interest. Can you talk to me about your tax strategies that you use to mitigate the taxes? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, I by no means a CPA, so, you know, take this with a grain of salt, but I think, I think all too often people are afraid of taxes, you know, like you will do anything and everything to pinch pennies or, or they'll, you know, you'll bring home less money so that you have to pay less taxes. And at the end of the day, I I don't really think you should be afraid of taxes. Taxes, taxes are just the cost of, of doing business. You know, if you have employees, you've got um, workers comp, you've got payroll taxes, you've got all these different things that is just kind of the nature of the beast. And so my, my thought is, you know, if, if you're walking down the street and you find a dollar on the ground, but you have to give 25 cents of it back to uncle Sam, are you not going to pick up that dollar? I mean, of, of course you would like, you're always going to, it's, it's just kind of the nature of the beast. And then I, I think too, a lot of people, you know, kind of get, get up in arms about the way that the, you know, the government, you know, allocates taxes. But at the end of the day, like we've got paved roads, we've got public education, we've got like, I mean, we live in America. So that's kind of my, my, my personal take on, I think there are a lot of benefits to paying taxes, but I I don't, I don't try to skirt them. I mean, obviously if I've got like an actual expense that I can deduct, then of course, you know, like that, that goes and and lowers your, your taxable income and, and you'd be dumb not to do that. But I, yeah, I think all too often people are just like, like afraid of taxes that they, they focus on the wrong thing. And I would, I would much rather focus on making more money and paying a little bit in taxes than just being so worried about pinching and scrimping and saving and doing all these little different things to avoid the taxes that my eye isn't really on the big picture. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a very valid point. I mean, you can take, you could pinch pennies and and try to you know, squeeze a dime out of a penny, or you could just go try to make a dollar, right? I mean, it makes more sense to make the dollar. Um, so cool. I mean, I would love to talk about, because you come from the IT background, that's what you were doing in college, and you're developing software now. So in particular, you got the the Rentastic software, and you're, let's just talk about that one first, actually. Tell us a little bit about Rentastic. Sure. That is for property management, correct? Not, not quite. Think of it as a, uh, think of it as almost like a QuickBooks for, for rental property, like landlords, just mom, small mom and pop. It's not a, it's not a full blown, uh, property management software. Um, so how, how that kind of started was, uh, many, many people on here may are probably familiar with Stessa. Stessa is like a free, uh, bookkeeping, uh, app for, for, you know, just kind of smaller landlords, mom and pop landlords. Um, and coming from an IT background, um, I started using Stessa 
And there were a couple of things that I just didn't really like about it. You know, there's nothing, nothing wrong really per se. It was just, you know, I didn't really like the user interface. I didn't like the user experience. There were a couple of things that I didn't really like how it categorized or how it worked. And so I was like, you know what, let's just, I'm just going to build my own. I mean, I've got an IT background. I, you know, I, I can build software, so I'm just going to kind of build this for myself. And then as I got into it, it kind of started to build into this full-blown thing. And then pretty soon it developed into a full website and, and an app. And right now we've got uh, 4,500 users or so on there and uh, it's growing every day. So. That's awesome. 4,500, that's not, that's not a small number. That's really cool. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's not, uh, I mean, it's, it's not where we'd love to be yet, but you know, it's only been a year and a half or two years or so. And so I, I'm, I'm by no means am I upset with, with that growth and especially where it didn't really, didn't really intend to be a full business in the first place. It was kind of just something that I wanted for myself and, and to use myself and then, you know, other people found value in it too. And so it's kind of just taken off from there. Love that. Um, so, I mean, yeah, the whole goal of the podcast is like trying to create a life of freedom and purpose. And I really wanted to highlight something you said about the software in particular when we were doing our intro call. You found you said you found it as a great way to generate passive income and you can have 300 users or 3000 clients and the workload is exactly the same. So let's kind of dive deeper into that thought process. Yeah, yeah, you bet. So. Um, I, I mean, just like you said, so, you know, whether I've got, you know, 300 users, 3000 users, 30,000 users, the, the, you know, the product is built, like it's already there. And, and the, the fractional cost of adding, uh, an additional user to the software is, I mean, literally pennies it's, it, it doesn't, it virtually adds no additional expenses or anything like that, but there's, so there's very little downside, but there's, there's all the upside. And, but there's one thing, one thing I want to mention is, is another reason that I originally looked at building software too, is, is the low upfront risk. Like a lot of people, they get into, get into real estate and, and, you know, for your first rental property, for example, you have to invest, you know, tens of thousands, sometimes even hundreds of thousands of dollars for a, for a down payment to potentially net, you know, 300 a month net per door, or, you know, even, you know, on a really good deal, like four to 500. And so, you know, people measure cash on cash and things like that. But if you, if you look at the software side of things, like I had very little investment, if any, like a, you know, a couple hundred bucks. Um, but every, every user is just, you know, additional income in my pocket. And there's not that huge upfront capital expense like there is with, you know, with, you know, your first rental property. So by, by no means am I, am I poo pooing on, on rentals or, or anything like that? Obviously we're transitioning away and, and our, we're kind of, uh, you know, transitioning into something else. But, um, a lot of people, I don't think really take that into account. There's, there's a lot of risk when you have to bring that much capital to the table. It's a really good point. And so essentially the reason it's so inexpensive for you is due to your programming background. And so essentially it's just your computer tools that you're using in your mind and you're able to, to code this up, spin it out and make some cash flow. I always loved how like, you know, real estate typically is the millionaire maker and business is the billionaire maker. And so, you know, I mean, particularly yep. like, I just love your spin on this essentially. Like I haven't thought about businesses necessarily being low capital, particularly software. Cause I've actually developed some software, but it, it was not cheap for me cause I don't code. So, uh, but yeah, I, right. uh, I love what you're doing, man. That's pretty awesome. 
Thank you. Yeah, there is there is if you're if you're not in like the IT background, software can be very expensive. If you don't know how to code, if you don't know how to program, you know, then typically you're you're looking at outsourcing, you know, to you know, a different different country with lower lower wages and things like that to even build a proof of concept. Um, but if it's something that you can kind of bootstrap yourself or even just, you know, there, there are no code, uh, solutions out there where you can actually build apps and things like that without having to know how to program. I, I don't know that it's like the best solution, but you can at least bootstrap something or have a proof of concept to see if it even is worth the investment before diving just a bunch of, you know, capital into it in the first place. How do you feel about that one? Uh, I feel like I just got kicked in the teeth. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this guy spent a lot of money. Um, <laughs> sorry for the. Oh, dude, yeah, it's okay. I've given I've given a few um, to you over the over the episode. So, <laughs> um, yeah, when you said low low cost investment, I'm like, oh goodness gracious. Uh, yeah. I've I've spent more in software than I have on a few of my rental properties. So, uh, yeah, it's super awesome to see. And so then if someone were to want to get in the software space, because it's a pretty fast moving space, depending on what area of software you're building, do you recommend that they build a proof of concept on their own through these apps? Do you recommend them partnering with a programmer? How, how would you go about it if you didn't have, like you have your knowledge, but you don't have the knowledge of the code? The So the very first thing, all too often I see people just like, jump headfirst into building the thing. The biggest, like the biggest thing is you have to have product market fit, like find some way first to figure out if this is even something that the market wants, like talk, talk to people in the space and, and, and really talk to people in the space, not just be like, Oh, what do you think of this idea? Because every, you know, everyone's going to say, Oh yeah, you know, that's a great idea. Even if they don't think it's a good idea, cause they don't want to hurt your feelings, you know, like really get it. Like Get nitty gritty, get deep down dirty and like find the users who can really benefit from this and, and, and talk to them and ask them what their problems are and what issues they have and things like that. And then if say you do have a viable product, you can, you can definitely partner with somebody if you've got a great idea, uh, but you don't know how to code, but you know, somebody who does know how to code, you know, you can share equity. Um, sometimes that can come back to, to bite you. Luckily I've, you know, I've been in good situations where that hasn't happened, um, on, on a different software project. I do have partners and it's worked out better than I could have imagined because we each have different, you know, different skill sets. Um, or, you know, kind of the, the, the last option is, is definitely hiring a, hiring a team and, and that way you don't have to split the equity, but first, yeah, first and foremost, I would definitely say like, test so thoroughly that you know, without a doubt that you have a market. And then the last thing I'd say is make sure that you have like a wait list, like always make sure to pre-sell your software long mm -hmm. before you even launch it. Like it's huge. People talk a lot about pre-selling courses. I think that's genius. Pre-sell your course because you can pre-sell a course. You can pre-sell your software before it's even developed and then say that you don't sell anything, then great. You didn't have to build anything. You can refund people all their money because it never came to market and then no harm, no foul. Yeah. And you're not out anything. Love that. Yep. Love that. Yeah. The sell then build strategy. Um, it is an amazing strategy because obviously you're defining that you have a market before you even build it. So it's like, Oh my God, I just, I made money. So not only could you reinvest it well, into what you're building. It's so backwards. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very backwards to what people think. It's very counterintuitive to think yeah. like, why would I sell something that I don't even have yet? But it's, it is 
by far the best way to totally. do it. And my, my strategy was I'll just build the thing with the most possible features in the world. And because then it'll become mm. the most valuable. Well, that, that's a dangerous game. Cause I was always like, Hey, I want all these features and none of these softwares have them. And then I think you start to see why basically softwares pick their own niche within even a space. And it's like, Hey, we're going to be really good at this or whatnot. Absolutely. And the one that tries to do it all. Like, so I was essentially building the Jack of all trades within the real estate CRM space. And so then recognizing, yeah, I mean, it's like the best software. Like we loved our software, absolutely freaking loved it, but you know, it's just, it's a long build. So, and you're competing, at least we were, we were competing at some pretty big players, you know, that have some pretty deep pockets. And so it just Mm. got to the place where when we started the software, there wasn't, what we had wasn't out there, but a couple years in, as we're building, like the, the gap narrowed and the speed with which other people moved was a lot faster than us. And so then we just had to decide like, how long do we really want to keep this thing going? Do we want to play this game in full? Cause that's what we have to do. And we decided not to. Mm, that's hard. That's really hard. And in real, real estate, um, SAS, you know, software as a service is, is, it's a very competitive market too. There's a lot of people out there doing it. So yeah, I, I applaud you for even, even attempting cause it's, it's, yeah. it, it can be brutal out there. It can be like, I actually really like not only enjoy, like I enjoyed the process of thinking through like, because it really allowed me to focus on how our business would run. So while I shouldn't have to spend as much as I spent to think about how the business should run, like I was very thankful afterwards that I went through the thought process. And so there's just certain ways that I see software now and see organizational structure that I would have never observed had I not been through that process. So totally, you know, that's, that's, that's my mind justifying the bad decision that I made. Right. So. Well, and if, if nothing else, it's, it's so fun to see something that you built come to light, you know, like that's, that's, Mm -hmm. it's so fun to create. And and I don't know, I think it's kind of addicting. So wildly addicting, especially like when you can marry that with some actual profit. Uh, So for you now, Mm -hmm. you've moved into the lending space. So you're essentially moving to these huge opportunities and this freedom of time. What do you, what, what's the next six to 12 months look like for you? Oh man, that's a good question. Yeah. So the, I think the big, the big focus is going to be on the, the hard money tracker. Um, I've got a stock investing, um, app, uh, it's called the dividend tracker, um, that we're actively working on too. So, um, if you're not in the real estate space and and more in the stock space, you know, that's, that may be something to, to check out, but, um, you know what? I, I, I have a problem with sitting still. Like I, <laughs> I don't, I don't know that I'll ever not have an active project that I'm working on. As soon as something does finish, you know, I've, I've got a million more ideas, you know, cooking. So I think, I think it just goes back to that, that serial entrepreneur and there's always going to be, you know, always going to be something. I, I a, a year or two ago, my wife and I, we, we took a cruise to the Bahamas and it was a seven day cruise. And by day five, I had had so much, you know, relaxation and margaritas that I was, man, I didn't know what to do. I had like 12 different business ideas in my head. Like I was ready to get home and just start cranking these out. You know, like it's, I, it's just, it's, it's a problem. It's, you know, I probably need to go to therapy to, to figure mm-hmm. it out, but <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, I don't know, I, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's a hard question to answer. There's, I don't know that there's specifically anything in mind, but you know, probably just, um, working on raising more money, still doing the flips, doing the hard money lending, and then, uh, keep doing the, the software, the multiple software projects on the side. 
So I'm curious because we haven't gotten details on the hard money tracker yet at all. I don't think we really discussed that on the call. So like, what exactly does that? Yeah. So once, and, and this is probably something it's, it's, it's a very small niche because most people probably are not familiar with this. Um, but when you, when you have a lot of, um, uh, loans out, it can get fairly difficult if you're not an organized person, most people will probably revert to an Excel spreadsheet, you know, and if you've got, you know, two to three, five, six, seven loans out, you know, it's pretty manageable, um, until you have 20 or 30 or 50 or more, you know, if you're this large institutional fund that has, uh, you know, a hundred plus loans or hundred million plus in capital, and you're doing, you know, tens of thousands of loans, you know, like it can get very, very difficult quickly to track all the, you know, the, the timelines and when, when the project is supposed to be done and assessing late fees, if the loan isn't paid in time. And then on top of that, you've got, you know, a hundred different investors that are backing you and you've got, you know, 3% of all the investors money tied up across, you know, dozens of different projects. And you need to figure out how much interest they're earning from each individual project and allocate it, you know, accordingly. And then you also have to have end of year tax reports and statements and things like that. You also have to spit out, um, you know, documents for the title company, payoff letters and, and deeds of trust and, and, you know, all these different things, like it get very complicated very quickly. So, like I said, if, if you're small, you know, you can, you can do it in, in Excel and word, but when, once you get pretty big, it, it gets out of hand pretty quickly. So that's, that's kind of the, the idea with the hard money tracker is just to, to make that easier for, for a lot of lenders. Um, so again, like I said, it's a very, very niche, uh, niche product, but I think once it comes to fruition, it'll be really helpful. So when you're, when you're tracking, does it, so it tracks like the loan start date, the payments, does it auto calculate like the principal balance? So someone can use it almost like they're a note servicing software. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Does it have the ability to generate payoff statements and all those statements? Yep, you bet. It also, it generates, um, uh, my mind just went blank. What's, uh, the uh, pre-approval letters, you know? So like if, if you're, if you're buying a, yeah. buying a property and, and, you know, you want to prove that you've got, got funds to, to back it up, you know, it generates all that kind of stuff. You can, you can program all the different, uh, automations in there and you can spit out, you know, a hundred statements at a time if you want it. I mean, it's, it, it's going to be fairly complex. So I, I just can't help my brain here. So does that lead you to want to start like a note servicing company? Um, I haven't gotten that far. It's not necessarily a bad idea. Um, I'm, I'm leaning towards the idea. I'm leaning towards saying no, just because I don't, I don't want to start a company just for the sake of starting a company. Um, I want to, I want to kind of stick. Yeah. And you go back to the beach. Yep. Yep. Exactly. I want to, <laughs> I want to like, I want to stay in my lane and I, I don't want to deviate from that cool. because I do suffer from, um, you know, shiny object syndrome and, and, and I, right. and one of my, <laughs> one of my new year's we goals is just yeah. like, I have to say no, legitimately, like one of my, my new year's resolutions is I have to say no more than I say yes, because I love, love saying yes to opportunities, but I know I can't. And that's, what's really hard for me. Right. Smart. Okay. That's a very smart sure. thing, but let me throw another <laughs> one out there for you. Um, have you considered using this software to maybe start purchasing non-performing notes and hmm. do you think it would work in that same way? 
I mean, I hadn't considered that, but I, I wouldn't rule it out. I think that's a really good idea. Yeah, I'm sorry for throwing squirrels. Tim, at let's you. just keep this going. <laughs> let's afraid. just throw as many like let's let's test his discipline <laughs> yeah. until he breaks. How many ideas could we come up with in the <laughs> next <laughs> ten minutes? Right? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh God. Oh man, um, dude, Bryce, this has been so much fun, man. Like you're doing so many cool things, and I mean, I, I, excuse me for asking, bro, but how old are you? I just turned thirty last month. Very cool. Oh, cool. I would have guessed younger. Um, but hey, I'll I take mean, it. I mean, you look good, dude. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you are out there. You're crushing it. You're crushing it on so many different levels. I mean, you went from IT guy at college making 40K a year. And now you got one software out cash flowing. You got another one in development, a third one in development. You're fixing and flipping houses, hard money lending. Like if anybody would wanted to reach out to you, like what would be the best way for them to do so? You know, I used to, I used to really work on having like a social media presence. I don't anymore just because I, I, that, that kind of came from part of like the new year's resolution that I had to say, no, I had to start turning down things and social mm-hmm. media kind of went, you know, went along with that. Um, I do have a small Instagram handle. It's called REI to Fi. Um, if anybody wants to reach out, they're more than welcome to, I don't check it super often, but you know, if you have questions or anything like that, I'd be, be more than happy to, to respond and. Um, other than that, yeah, I, I, like I said, I really don't have much of a presence just cause I'm, I think I'm, I'm too focused on other things, but beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Um, Bryce Matheson, man. Um, thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into your life and in, in multiple businesses. This is a lot of fun. Um, and to those of you out there chasing freedom, freedom is acquired one action at a time. If you do nothing else, at least write down one action that you got from today's episode and make sure to implement that within the next seven days. And please tell somebody you know that can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you guys for tuning in to today's episode, and we'll catch you guys on the next one.